the Ten Commandments. Now, before I get to our final uh, sermon on the series, do you know what these are? Yeah, you know what these are. These are balloons that celebrate uh, individuals who have chosen to trust Christ this week, actually. And uh, these were people that had trusted Christ in September, and the gold ones are new people who've chosen to trust Christ. So I want to tell you the stories, because this is what one of the things we celebrate here in our church, is somebody going from death to life, to uh, out of darkness into light, and, and from hopelessness to hope, from not knowing God to being a child of God. And so this week, we have a program, we have a team, and of Christina Yan, who is one of the people we just uh, brought into membership, and then Alyssa Kavanaugh as Annika Choi and uh, Judy McKnight. And I told you about them a couple weeks ago. And so they do this ministry called Beautiful Mess. They're a team. And so they decided that they were going to focus on sharing the gospel this past Monday. And Christina said... Uh, I don't, I've never done this publicly, but I want to do it using my art. She's a very talented artist. And she drew, as she was drawing a picture, she was sharing the gospel and explaining it as she was painting a picture. And when in the end she said, is there anybody who wants to pray to receive Christ? There were four uh, children that said, they, they raised their head and said, I would like to receive Christ. And she said, well, then come forward and we'll pray with you. And two parents who were there also came forward and prayed to receive Christ. So that was six people that... And then, uh, which is like, it's fantastic. That's, what, that's one of the key, key things we do, right? Lead people to faith in Christ and then build them in that faith. That's what, what, that's what we're all about. That's what Jesus told us to do. Then I had a, this week, I had a grandmother. I'm going to leave out the names, but I want to read the email of what happened with the grandchild because I think it's really good. If you have kids in your home, this is just wisdom on the part of the parents. So uh, the grandma was saying to me, she told me that this young boy had received Christ. And uh, I said, oh, tell me the story. And she said, his parents had presented the gospel to him a number of times, and so have I as a grandparent. His parents felt strongly that they didn't want to make it too simplistic where he would ask Jesus into his heart but have no understanding of repentance and the need for faith. So they have used the book, The Ology, Oology, Crystal, that we gave them to our theology or something like that. Okay. And um, uh, they're very good, which explains the basics of Christianity for kids. And then uh, they were also reading Pilgrim's, Children's Pilgrim's Progress. And I guess there's some questions in the back of the children's version. And in, during those questions, he told them he wanted to become a Christian during those discussion questions. And so there was a family, a mom and a dad and grandparents, who have prayed over and, and actively sought to share their faith, not pushing their child into faith, but planting seed, planting seed, planting seed. And then he says, I want to receive Jesus. So there's another balloon that's up there for that. So let's celebrate that as well. I wish I was that wise as a parent. Uh, okay, Ten Commandments. <sighs> We're at the end, and I want to do something a little different. I want to read a story from the Old Testament, but it's a little longer. And so what I have is an assignment for you. While I'm reading, I want you to count 
how many of the Ten Commandments you see are violated in this story. Okay, that's your job. I'm going to read. It'll probably be up here behind me. Yeah, it'll be up here behind me. And, uh, but listen and follow along. But in your minds, count how many of the Ten Commandments are violated in this story. So, here we go. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of King Ahab, who was king of Samaria. Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, hey, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is so close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll pay you whatever it's worth. But Naboth replied, as he should have, according to the law of the Lord, the law forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. It was given to them by God, and they were to hold on to it. So Ahab went home sullen and angry. Sullen and angry because Naboth, the Jezreelite, had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. And he lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. <laughs> nice to know that you have a king, and that's how he handles the word no. <laughs> kind of like a three-year-old. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, why are you all so, so sullen? Why won't you eat? And he answered, because I said to Naboth, the Jezreelite, sell me your vineyard, and if you prefer, I'll give you another vineyard in his place. But he said, I won't. Basically what he's saying. Jezebel, his wife, said, is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and, uh, and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. And in those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people, but seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king, then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and nobles who lived in uh, Naboth's city did as Jezebel had directed in the letters she had written to them. She sets it all up. She schemes all behind, and they take out and do her bidding. And they proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came, sat opposite of Naboth, and brought charges against him before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. And as soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, get up, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive, he is dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he wept. Uh-uh. He got up and he went down and he took possession of Naboth's vineyard. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, the prophet. Go down, meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria, he is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of that vineyard. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. 
an encouraging story to start the service with. By the way, uh, I didn't know that that's how they sing Christmas carols in South Africa, but I love it, don't you? Don't you love it? <laughs> it's nice. So how many, uh, how many violations of the Ten Commandments there did you count? Just say, I didn't see any. I saw one, I saw two, maybe three. There's six in one story. Six violations. Okay, here they go. They violate command number one. You shall have no other gods before me. Uh, where did you pull that from the story? Galatians, or Ephesians 5.5. 5. Ephesians 5.5 5 says, For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, parenthesis, such a person is an idolater. Greed is idolatry. Greed is to worship in your heart something other than God. And that's exactly what he was doing here. Exactly. I have to have it. Even if I have to violate God's command, I am going to get what I want. The heart of the problem is right here. That he, he feared God less than getting his own wants. First command that he violates right there. Command number three, you shall not, uh, um, where, where am I? You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Now remember, we tend to think in our culture, oh, that means swearing, but Dustin did a great sermon on this and showed whenever we present God, if we, if we present him falsely, then we are misusing his name. And what do they do? They say, Tell the, the, the scoundrels to say that he cursed God. So they're using God's name to kill a man. I would say that would fall under misusing the name of God. There's two he violated. Number six, nobody's going to be surprised at this. I'll bet most of you, if not all, you got it. You shall not murder. Well, that was pretty clear. I mean, the prophet said, you murdered. And the prophet also said, uh, command number eight, you shall not steal. You murdered and you stole his property. But they also did, number uh, nine, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Now, they may not have been the ones who did it, but they used their power and the fear and their money to hire scoundrels who would do it. They're as guilty, if not more so, than the ones who actually did it because they prompted it. There's five. And then the final command, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, ox, donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And this was where the problem started. He asked to buy the land. The Naboth said no, and he could not take no for an answer. Why? Because he coveted that piece of land. And coveting is a gateway sin. A gateway sin. Because it happens inside. And it always leads to some kind of action. 
Did you know it's the first sin recorded in the Bible after the fall? And you go, hold on, no, 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 murder, murder. No, 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 no. Cain covets the favor of God that Abel, his brother, received in their offering, and he gets angry because he didn't get what he wanted, and so he killed, murdered Abel. First, the gateway sin, the heart. In fact, if you go back to that passage, you'll see God says to him, sin desires you. It's at the door of your heart because he wanted something he couldn't have, so he killed David, remember David, King David? Let me use two names, Bathsheba, Uriah. Bathsheba, he committed adultery with, who happened to be Uriah's wife, and so he had Uriah murdered so that he could cover it up. It all started when he looked from the roof of his palace down onto the roof of a neighboring house and saw Bathsheba bathing. That's where it started. I want the gateway sin. Now, before we think, yeah, well, it's a good thing that's all Old Testament stuff, uh, it's as live today as it is any other day. A man who covets the inheritance and so steals from his siblings. A woman who covets the look or the popularity or the, the uh, influence another woman has, and so she gossips and slanders behind her back to destroy her. A man or a woman who covets the spouse of another person, and they flirt, and then soon a relationship's developing, and soon they're involved in sexual immorality, destroying both families and bringing hurt that is lifelong because they wanted something they shouldn't have Chased, but did. Covet. How many of us are in crushing debt because we want to travel like, or dress like, or drive like, or live like a sibling, or a friend, or somebody we work with, or just the people around us? Because we got to have. Now, my observation with coveting is, it seems to be factory installed. Now, when I go out and see my, I won't use names here, but I, <laughs> I see my grandsons. Now, I have one of my grandsons. He loves cars. Loves them. I, I, I'm, I don't know if I'm exaggerating, but if I am, not by much. I'll bet you he has a box of 300 cars. He just think, you know, those little Hot Wheels and stuff like that because he just loves them. And so he gets them at Christmas, he gets them birthday, he gets, you know, he, when we're out there, I seem to be buying cars all the time and just it's a natural thing. And so he has this big box and he'll take about 15 or 20 and he'll set them up and he's very peculiar with how he does it. He'll set them up in a line like this and then he, he drives them and you can hear. And then he puts them on his play mat. And then he plays with those 20 cars. And he'll play 
like literally hours with those cars. He loves cars. He can drive. At three years old, he had a little car. He could, he could, he could put that thing in a spin around a corner. His dad jacked up the battery power so it would go three years old. So he could go faster and he would slide around corners with his brother in, in the car. Like the kid can back up. He puts his hand back and backs up the car. Like it's unbelievable. And so he just loves cars. And he's playing happily until little brother comes. Little brother comes into the room and wants to play too. And so go, he goes over to the box of the other 280 cars and picks one out and starts to want to play on the car mat. And big brother all of a sudden wants, no nay, needs that car. And then a fight starts. He pushes his little brother down and he grabs the car and then he screams a four-letter word at him. Mine! And grabs it out of his hand. Little brother gets up. <laughs> He's a tough nut. And he gets up and he goes after big brother and grabs him and they're fighting and then there's hitting and there's crying and they're screaming and, and it's mine, mine, mine and they're back and forth. And so as a parent, when this used to happen, I used to step in and deal with it. Try to teach my boys how to share and not be greedy. Now as a grandparent, I just watch it happen. Because it's amazing what you learn. I just watch them go at it. And, uh, you know, <laughs> Dallas will come into the, the rooms, like, looks at me like, couldn't you do something in here? Like, and you know what I've observed when it comes to covetousness? Wanting, desiring what other people have. The first thing I deserved, it seems to be hardwired into every one of us. I think with all sins, some of us struggle more than others, but we all have this. We look at something and we want it and we don't have it and so we're going to do something that is harmful to us or the other person to get it. I don't think it's wrong to say I want to have a car, I want to have a house, but when somebody else has it and I want it because they have it and I want what they have, that's crossing the line to covetousness. And uh, we all have it to one degree or another. The other thing I observed in these two little guys, they don't realize. They feel totally justified in saying, mine. As if it's their right to have it. As if little brother took something that belonged to him. Mine. Mine. Interesting. We don't see in ourselves what the word of God points out. I, I don't think Ahab and Jezebel had a problem with mine because they killed the man to get it. And so for all of us, how prevalent is this gateway sin and what's it producing in our lives? I think this is why Jesus said in um, Mark Try to get to Mark chapter 7. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is written from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. All these evils come from inside. That's where they start. And we, we nurture them, and we justify them, and we enjoy them. 
And sometimes we fight them. But Jesus is saying this, this sin of covetousness is a heart sin that then will produce actions in your life. And so you need to do what Solomon said, guard your heart. And so I thought, well, how do, as we close this, it's true of all these sins, they start in the heart. That's why the Ten Commandments are so uh, relevant to us, because they describe actions of the heart. Rather, they describe condition of the heart that will then go into action. And so how do we, how do we deal with what's going on in the heart? Things we struggle and battle with. Now, I wish I could give you three steps. Do this, this, and this, and you'll never covet again. Um, doesn't work like that. Rather, there seem to be these practices that we do that are sin killers. They're life-giving and sin killers. And the degree to which we do those practices is the degree to which we gain life and kill sin. It's like what you eat, what you take in, determines the health of your body. And so as you do these practices, they produce health in your body and give you the ability to say no to sin. So the first one I would think I thought of when I thought, well, what does Scripture teach? It's uh, walk by the Spirit. And you're thinking, oh, thank you. What does that mean? <laughs> so walking by the Spirit it is a relational term. God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. It means he related. He had a relationship with them. We walk with God. Enoch walked with God, meaning he had a relationship. He talked. He, he com communicated, conversed. He knew God and, and walked with God. And that's the term walk by the Spirit in the New Testament is picking up that idea. It's a metaphor for having relationship. You can picture two people walking down a road, talking with one another, knowing one another, discussing with one another, sharing with one another. Walking by the Spirit is a relational description of how we relate to God. And the reason that that is so important because the people in our lives influence us on our decision-making, yeah? My best friend when I was in high school, Trent, influenced me to become a Christian. He was the main, one of the main factors that brought me to faith in Christ, his presence in my life. And then in university, a good friend of mine, Greg, was the main factor God used to influence me to go into ministry. And after I got my Bachelor of Arts, it was Sam, who was a youth pastor, and I was a leader in the group, and he, he was the main influence in my life that said, Dad, you need to go to seminary. And then the greatest influence of my life, humanly speaking, has been Crystal. And I can't, I can't, I could just go on and on about the influence she had, but it was her that God used to say, you need to be a pastor. It was, it was her that God used to say, Ed, don't quit now in ministry. It was her that God used to help me persevere, persevere through some of the most difficult times in my life. And it's her that influenced me to put the seat down. Some of the biggest influences in my life have come through her. <laughs> 
Did I just say that out loud? No, again. <laughs> so the people around us influence us. And the Holy Spirit is a person. It is not, the term to describe the Holy Spirit is not it. It's he. He is a person. And when he has access to your life, he begins to change you from the inside out because that's where the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And his thoughts and his values begin to shape us and influence us. That's why we read in Galatians chapter 5 that the Holy Spirit will influence us and build certain traits in us. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there's no law. You don't need a law for these things. These things come right out of your heart. And how do they get in your heart? And how are they developed in your heart? Because the Holy Spirit begins to influence you as you have more and more relational interactions with the Holy Spirit. As you walk with the Spirit. Well, how do you walk with the Spirit? How do you have a relationship with the Holy Spirit? It's, it's more difficult because you don't see the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is supernatural and spiritual, dwells within our souls. And so you don't see a person. At times, you will feel the Holy Spirit in your life working, and at other times, you feel nothing. And so you wonder, is the Holy Spirit there? And that's a step of faith of saying, God said he gave us the Holy Spirit. And so now as I develop relationship, I'm developing relationship with the Spirit and the Spirit will be changing me. And by the way, you are usually the last one that sees the changes in your life that the Holy Spirit does. So how do you develop a relationship? Well, the same way you do with a person anywhere in the world, at work, uh, in marriage, in your family, in sports, time plus communication always equals relationship. When you spend time with a person and you communicate with them, you will develop a relationship over time. So as you spend time in the Word of God, listening to what the Holy Spirit would say to you, not just reading it, but reading it, and thinking on it, meditating on it, maybe even studying it. That's why I'm so excited about what's happening in Springvale Institute. Because their deep study of the word of God, you're listening to what God wants to say to you. And when you do that in your own personal devotion times, you're giving time with God to hear from God. And again, it's not usually the bam that gets you, though they happen. It's the cumulative effect over time of spending time with the Holy Spirit that you begin to change. But you have to have that cumulative effect of spending time with Him. And then as you pray and you communicate with the Holy Spirit, sharing your heart, telling God what you're thinking, what you're going through, what you need, how you love him, what's, what areas you need to grow, you begin to grow and be influenced by the Holy Spirit. One of the greatest gifts we have is God's presence. That's why it's such a big deal. It doesn't matter where you go. He's there with you. If you truly have surrendered your life to Jesus. Let me just do a caveat here. The main teaching of scripture is God loves us 
but we are broken. And so he died on a cross to pay the penalty of our sins so that we could be restored with him because of his deep love for us. The message of church is not, you are good and better than people out there. The message of the Bible and of church is, we are all broken. This is like a hospital. We're all broken. We all need God. We all need Jesus' uh, death on the cross to pay for sin. And we all need to choose whether or not we're going to surrender our lives to God. By faith in God, I don't mean believe a set of beliefs. I mean, you got to believe the right thing. But that, it's more than that. It's by saying, I am going to live out the Ten Commandments. I am going to live out the commandments of the Word of God in my life. Because Jesus said, the person that has my commands and keeps them, that is the person that loves me. Not the person that believes the truth I speak. That's not those that love him. Even Satan believes the truth that Jesus speaks. It's those that have it and live it out. Ah, a heart of love. And we have been given a gift of the Holy Spirit when we put our faith in Jesus so that now we can grow in our faith. Okay, so that may be the most important thing I've said today. Is learning to walk with the Holy Spirit. Develop relationships. Now, I do, um, I also want to say another sin-killing, life-giving practice is confession. Now, there's two forms of confession. The confession we give when we've broken, we've sinned and made a mistake, and so we confess, and we need to do that to be restored to God and get things right. But I don't necessarily mean that, though that's important. I mean confessing before you do the sin. Having somebody in your life that you can tell, this is what I'm drawn to. This is what my heart is drawing me to. This is the situation I'm in. Can you pray with me? Can you help me? That way. It's like when we lived in Dallas, uh, there's a lot of cockroaches in Dallas. And when you walk in the room and flick on the light real quick, you go, they scamper to the darkness. And that's what happens when you turn the light of confession on it. Sin can't, doesn't do well with light. So when you tell others about what's true of your life, somebody you trust, somebody who's mature, and say, this is what's true of me, pray for me right now. This is what I'm struggling with. This is who I'm struggling with or about. Pray for me right now. Do you not think if David had a shared with a friend, hey, I saw this woman, and I, I'm telling you, it's all I can, I, I think I'm going to fall if, you don't, if, if, I, if I'm not careful. And do you not think if David had shared that with a friend and the friend helped him, that that story would be different? I think so. But we're too embarrassed by our sin. We believe the lies of Satan. And we feel shame and we feel guilt. Scripture says to grow relationship with the Spirit and then confess to others. The other thing I want to say about that is pray. When you're in the middle of temptation, pray. Every decision you make has to go through your mind. So if you're praying, you significantly decrease the chances of sin taking over your mind or your mind agreeing to go ahead and do sin.
Now, when you're praying about a sin or a temptation, don't focus on the temptation or the person or the thing that you want. Focus on Jesus. <laughs> I've made this mistake. I focus. I don't want to think about it. I'm, I'm so angry at that person, and God helped me not be angry at them. And Well, look what they did to me, and you can understand why I'm angry. And So all I'm doing is praying about being angry. What do you think that's going to accomplish in my life? But if I pray, Jesus, I'm angry right now. But I think about how you treated me when I fail. I think about the cross. And I think about your spirit within me and how you want me to be peace-loving. Can you fill my heart with that rather than what it's being filled with right now? Don't focus on the sin you want to overcome. Focus on the one who helps you overcome the sin. Now, the final thing I would say is, don't believe the lives of Satan. Here's one he goes, oh, you're such a terrible person. Look at what you think about. Look at what you're struggling with. Clearly, you're not a godly person. Clearly, you, you might not even be a Christian. As if struggling with sin reveals some kind of weakness in our Christianity. It seems to me, that when Jesus said, sign up for Christianity, he was saying, and oh, by the way, the job description is fight sin. You're going to battle with it. You must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's the call of Jesus for us. Now, why would he say that? Well, because I don't like denying myself. I like pleasing myself. And I don't want to pick up the cross and do the hard thing and fight sin. I don't want to follow him. I want what I want. And so being a Christian is all about fighting sin. And the moment you are fighting sin and being tempted, don't believe the lie of Satan that there's something wrong with you and your Christianity. Uh, believe the truth of Jesus. Ah, we're here. Let's deal with this. This is what I called you to. This is what you're supposed to be doing. Now here's the irony of it. I struggle more now with sin than when I was in my 20s and 30s and 40s. I kind of thought it would get easier. I thought a few victories along the way would kind of set me up to just coast. And what Jesus has done is dug deeper and said, you know, some things, Ed, you thought were okay, you're ready to face now. I find my Christianity harder now than when I first came to Christ. Because Jesus <laughs> is pulling out deeper from my heart things that I never even noticed before. Or I thought were okay. And he's like, no. Let's fight this one together. And so, if you're going to walk with God, you're going to struggle with sin. We're broken. It's okay. That's what he calls us to, to fight. Using our, letting the Spirit empower us as we learn and grow in relationship with him by using prayer and fighting and using the word to fight against temptation and recognize that we honor Jesus when we fight sin. And when we fail, we confess and depend on his faithfulness and we get back up and start the fight again. That's Christianity. At least that's the one in here. The last thing Satan wants you to know is that you can win, and when you don't, you can be forgiven.
Hmm. So, we close out these Ten Commandments. One of the thoughts that I have had about these is that they're kind of irrelevant like to our day and age because, you know, they were written by, to Moses and the Israelites years ago, and so that doesn't really apply to me today. Then I go through them, and I realize they're as relevant for my life today as they were the day they were written. In fact, if all I had, if all I had was the Ten Commandments, I could come to Jesus. Nothing else. I didn't have any other thing, just Ten Commandments. I would realize I'm broken because I can't love God. Because the summary of the Ten Commandments is the first four, love God. And the next six is love your neighbor. I can't stand before God and say, oh, every day, every time, I've always loved God and loved my neighbor. And so then I got to ask myself a question. Well, what am I, what's going to happen to me? What am I going to do about that? And I would realize, well, I can't do anything about it or else I would have kept the Ten Commandments. Therefore, I need the mercy and grace of God. And where would I end up? Jesus. Just ten. Just these ten would lead me. And then, now that I have received Jesus, now I know how to obey him. And keep my heart clean. I love this final prayer. This is our prayer for the series. If I could see it. Father, help me to love you more dearly. Know you more clearly. And walk with you more nearly. It was an Anglican church father that wrote that prayer. And I thought, that is good. Let me pray this prayer over you. Father, help us to love you more dearly, know you more clearly, and walk with you more nearly. And so be light in our world today.